Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald founder and editor in chief of ComicBookHerald.com. I'm excited today to be joined by the author, creator of many, many comic works, including the recent chrono page, Money Shot, Dark Red, at Robin's Suicide Squad, King Shark, and some of my personal favorites, Revival and Hack Slash. It's Tim Seeley. Tim, how are you doing today? Good, man. Good to good to see you on this fine Sunday morning. Absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time. All right, I got to ask, before we get into the real questions, you're Chicago-based. Um, you, you have a revival is very Wausau-based. I've got family in Wausau. I grew up around Chicago. Uh, Cubs or Sox? I'm not a sports guy, but I do find that if I go back to Wisconsin, they like it better if I pick the Cubs because then they can argue with me. So, uh, <laughs> okay. I just, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I don't really care, but I also uh, I know the value of a good bar conversation. So I'll just pretend I'll just do the one I, I think people will like. So when I'm on the north side, I'll pick Sox because then people are like, oh, whatever. You know, even though I don't really, I don't watch sports. So yeah, I, yeah, you just play it, play it by feel. Okay, very good to know. I when I was picking my hoodie this morning, I was putting on a Cubs one, then I'm like, oh, Chicago based. Like, I don't want to piss him off right away. <laughs> I don't really understand the. Um, I, I've just never understood sports fandom, so the Chicago thing even confuses me more because they're both like Chicago things. But people, I people like to have something to argue about, uh, oh, yeah. and sports is a like non-war side you can have right like now we know you can't be democrats republicans without war but you can be like a cubs and Sox fan without war so generally yeah yeah you fight you can argue it's like a human enjoyment thing to have like tribes but uh yeah it's good for that i just don't care so <laughs> yeah no fair enough <laughs> all right so we've been planning this interview on and off for months now and and every time we're about to do it you announce another book it's amazing like it's, it's one of the wildest situations you seem especially busy with all the stuff that's coming out i'm sure it feels that way how does it compare to like you know you have a a long comics career like how does it compare to other points in your career do you feel like particularly busy in this moment well i mean it sort of looks that way i still basically write about four books a month pretty much and i have for pretty much the past almost probably 10 years i guess um but the books like chronophage and a couple of the other ones are coming out i you know i did sort of maybe I think Chronophage, I started, you know, kind of when there's the um, beginning of the COVID lockdown. And a lot of publishers, for instance, I was working on uh, Bloodshot of Valiant and, and I was working on some other stuff. And the publishers paused, like everybody kind of freaked out. Yeah. So, um, you know, in the meantime, I talked to the other publishers who were interested in, in people doing OGNs, original graph novels. And so I took those on in that time uh, and pitched. And, and so I have another one that hasn't been announced yet, but uh, Chronophage is obviously announced. I think it comes out pretty soon. And mm -hmm. that was a book I worked on throughout that period. And uh, Ilias was drawing it. You know, it took, you know, it was 120 some pages. So that took him quite a long time to do it. So it looks like a ton of stuff right now. But in the big part of it is this stuff was done, probably spread out more than you think. And, and also like Loaded Bible, which is, uh coming out um the, the orders are due i think on monday you know that, that's a book that steve orlando mostly did almost all the work on and you know i it's a i guess a licensed book he did a sequel to something i did so you know the ones that i'm really like actively writing right now are uh i have to check uh, <laughs> Wenverse, um uh and then oh and a bunch of things that aren't announced so uh there's a bunch of stuff i'm working on that i'm you, you're not seeing it because uh, it's not announced yet. So. TBD. Yeah. Sure. Sure. 
All right. Very good. Very good. No, so we'll talk about Chronophage. I do want to ask about Gwynverse, um, which is this upcoming Marvel project you've got. Um, kind of what was the the origin of that project and what can you tell people about what's to come? The origin of it was I hadn't worked at on a Marvel project in a while. I was talking to one of the editors there and he just said, well, what what have you done lately? So I sent him um, Superman versus Lobo and he was like, oh, that's funny. You can do a funny thing? I was like, yeah, I can, I can do a funny thing. And then uh, <laughs> They asked me if I wanted to do something with Spider Gwen. I was like, I have a two year old, so she loves, you know, Spider Gwen. Like we that show, Spider's Amazing Friends, played. Oh my gosh, it is it is show number one in this household. It is huge. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you saw her walk in. She's got a Spider Man hoodie on. You got a Spider Man cup. Uh, Heck yeah, so yeah. Take it. Um, and also, you know, I, I really liked uh, Jason and um, Robbie's book. Uh, when they first put that one out, I was following it. I thought, you know, Robbie's an old friend of mine, um, so. I felt like I could do the book the way that they would have done it, you know, with jokes and the punk music reference and the, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I pitched them a, a idea of it, and they came back with all these designs, and they said, "Can you put in all these designs by Peach uh, Momoko?" I was like, "Yep, I can make that work." So, uh, I just turned an issue three of that. So uh, we're crunching along. Um, Jody uh, Nishima is drawing it and doing some awesome stuff. I think it'll be it'll be fun. I mean, I. I don't have to research Spider-Man. I know that stuff like the back of my hand. Like a lot of times I, I get gigs and I have to spend a bunch of time, you know, doing research, but I don't, I don't have to do that with this. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Is it a, it's a mini, it's an event. How, how would you describe it? I think it's a five issue series, I believe. Yeah. Sure. And what's the, what's the premise for Spider-Gwen? So, you know, everybody's got their own multiverse, um, essentially. And, and obviously this is versions of Gwen Stacy's different superheroes, but the plot is a little different than the usual. It's essentially is, Everybody's got their own multiverse, so it's screwing with time, you know. And the whole sort of idea in Marvel is that every choice you make makes a different universe. And so, uh, a villain sort of locks in this universe and and sort of remakes history with trying to make herself as all these superheroes. And Gwen has to stop it. And she accidentally makes it so that she's all the superheroes, but they're through time. So, uh, Cap, you know, Thor is back in one um, thousands around there, and and uh, Captain America's in the fifties, and Iron Man is in the eighties. And other characters, I won't uh, ruin it, but as it goes on, this sort of time, they end up changing time, essentially. And so Gwen is trying to pull them out of time, and she's pursued by a bunch of sort of villains from these worlds that have been altered. So you've got a guy named Dr. Cephalopod, who's essentially like if uh, Dr. Octopus was H.P. Lovecraft kind of character. Mm, okay, nice. Uh, and Roachman, who's a, who was a janitor at Alchemax in 2099, and he stole a suit, and so now... You know, so it's got all these characters, these villains from out of time are, are chasing her around, uh, trying to stop her from rescuing the, the versions of Gwen's that are like herself. Cool, cool. Very fun. Okay, good deal. So we'll look for that coming from Marvel here in the future. Um, let's back it up. So the the definitely when I reached out initially, I wanted to talk about Money Shot in detail. And then we had Chronophage come out, which is a graphic novel from Humanoids, which you mentioned here. Um, it's got really, really fantastic art here. Um, it, it's a nice looking book. And it is it is. You have, you know, kind of the that dichotomy of works here where you have sillier, funnier stuff, right? And then obviously some some heavier, more serious things that definitely seem to reflect some, you know, personal interests. Um, how actively do you seek projects to let you balance those varying styles, right? Because Chronophage is definitely, you know, it's it's more like a, a revival or something even in the past where it's it's serious, right? You're really looking at these people's lives and and the reflections on their past. Yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of feel like I the two things that I can do are like funny sort of satirical stuff and then I can do the serious horror stuff. I think that's the two things I, I sort of do the best. 
you know, I don't really actively seek anything in particular. All I know is if I do one thing too long, I tend to like pitch some version of the other thing. So, yeah. Uh, but because of the way comics works, people tend to hire you for the thing that they sort of, they know you the most for, they associate you with. So a lot of people associate me with Hackslash. A lot of people associate me with Revival. So that tends to put me down those two paths. When Rob Levin came to me from Humanoids, he had said he really wanted to do some kind of horror romance kind of thing, something kind of serious. And I was like, I have an idea. Because I had this concept for Chronophage kicking around in my head. And then it just kind of timed out perfectly. Uh, it actually, I pitched it in like, I think the November before the in 2019. So right before the pandemic started. And then it became more personal because it's about losing time, right? And so... And then, you know, I just had a daughter. So all that stuff kind of became part of that. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, the, the losing time aspect of it is wild because it is, obviously, this is cliche at this point, but that feeling of, like, what what even is a year now, right? And it's, like, this this sense of, like, when do things happen? Like, it's definitely, I think that's very universal <laughs> that it's never been looser in a lot of people's memories. Um, the parents part of it is definitely something I connect with. So in Chronophage, we have this main character who she's a mother, um, yeah, she has a, a teenage daughter and it's really talking about, you know, that road not taken alternate reality of like, oh, what is my life if I hadn't had kids or or had things had gone differently, right? Which is very relatable regardless of whether or not you're a parent. Um, it's an effective exploration. I, do you think the pandemic accelerated this sort of thinking and this sort of like, especially on the parent side of things in terms of like what we do with our time? Do you think that really like heightens those emotions? Absolutely. I mean, I, and a big part of it, you know, sort of when the the lockdown occurred, I had, we had, she was about uh, five months old at that point, four or five months old. And I had taken a teaching job uh, because I wanted to get out of the house, not because I needed anything more to do, uh, but just because I was like, I've been, you know, I came, I was in a studio with a bunch of people and I came home because we had her. And, and so uh, and she, she was an accident. Uh, she was not planned. And that's mm -hmm. all good. Uh, but you know, sort of like all these factors um, kind of contributed to, I think, the way it feels, which was, you know, I had sort of tried really hard to go back into the world and to kind of feel like the world just kept sending me <laughs> to be alone. And just the the parts of that, like uh, in the story, I think you see a lot of Chloe really wishes she she could get something started, uh, you know, and feels like a lot of the reasons that it's not happening for her is because of of her situation. And we see parts of that is true, right? I mean, obviously the choice is, you know, it's a financial situation when you have a kid because now you cannot dedicate a time to taking risk and you and you can't take risk because you, you know, uh, you, you might fail and then how are you going to pay for stuff? And, and uh, you know, especially I think during the pandemic, it made it very clear how much of our time that we took for granted, like that you could send your kid to school and someone else would take care of them. And, mm -hmm. and like, now all of a sudden, it's like you're at home all the time with these people, and, and there's no daycare. <laughs> uh, so you know all those things were contributing, I think, to, to how much it affects Chloe's life to uh, to have had this daughter, and and for her to kind of, at least on some surface level, kind of wish she she had it, even though of course mm -hmm. she loves it. Uh, right. You know, there's a very human thing about being like, and I was just hearing my wife this morning was so frustrated with my daughter. She's just like, ah, I wish you know, I wish yeah. I you like of course she doesn't mean that but every parent goes through that at some point yeah no it's a very honest exploration you know i think it's a thing a lot of parents don't want to give voice to but like you know I've, I've had three boys over the last five years 
Okay. So I'm like, it's very busy and I'm, I wouldn't change it for the world. I'm in a great situation, but occasionally I'm just like, how did I not like build a mass media empire before I had kids? <laughs> like, how did I not like, like save the world before kids? Cause I'm like, I must've had so much time. Like I can't even imagine it now. Yeah. And that's the weird thing is, you know, my wife and I talk about this. Like we used to, the thing that got cut for us and, and it's a combination of Valentina and the pandemic was those connections to other people. Like we used to have a lot more, we used to spend a lot more time with family and friends. And now we spend all our time with each other. And obviously the pandemic exacerbated that, but that was also part of our life before, you know, those three months or four months or whatever before uh, when we had her and we didn't have uh, COVID floating around. So, um, you know, the, the one of the things in the story is, is that the, the vampire, the chronophage needs people who have connections, right? Otherwise it doesn't, he can't get anything out of you. There's no sort of no paths for him to feed on if it's just you at home by yourself. And so, you know, we, we explore that with Chloe has this best friend and all of a sudden she doesn't. She doesn't remember ever having this best friend who she used to be able to go to and talk to about her problems. And now that woman is gone from her life and she doesn't even know she's ever there. So it's, you know, kind of exploring all those things. And, and you know, I, I'm a social person, uh, so I and I'm I'm definitely not a sit at home and work kind of guy. Like I'm just not. So for me, that the sort of the most painful parts of this are is that isolation, and that's how I ended up going to teach because I just I just had to be I had to talk to somebody. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, no. If they were paying me to do it. I was fine with it. You know. <laughs> Even better, right? For sure. No, it's 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 definitely I think a very relatable thing right now, and, and Chronophage explores it pretty effectively. You know, you mentioned there. Okay, the Chronophage is kind of this horror vampire a twist on a vampire right in, in its own way and i won't spoil it for for people who because the graphic novel's out yet and we'll, we'll link to it on the show notes here um vampirism is obviously coming up in a lot of your work right now you got dark red going on with aftershock where we got a vampire story um you've been working on vampire the masquerade uh i'm sure there's other stuff probably as well is that something you have a particular affection for sort of the lore and mythology for vampires um or is that like more of a recent thing where you're like i just need to i need to integrate that no it's always been a part of the stuff i mean i you know, going back to like 10 years ago, I did a book called Ex Sanguine, which is a vampire story. And, uh, yeah. you know, I'm always, when I was a kid, I was super into monster stuff. I mean, like a lot of kids are, but my dad was a horror fan and my dad uh, collected vampire movies. So we had, he had every Dracula thing he could find, he had all the hammer stuff. And I would always, you know, peek in to watch movies with him. And I, the one I distinctly remember the most when I, when I was, you know, 10 years old, I, I peeked in and he was watching Fright Night. And uh, if you've ever seen Friday Night, it's, you know, kind of a riff on those sort of hammer horror movies, but it takes place in this, uh, this kid can see a vampire in, in a house next door. Uh, and I just, love it. I love that movie so much. And so I've always been into vampire stuff. And I, you know, but West of Sundown has a, has a vampire in it as well. I just like the, it's a flexible uh, myth, right? It's every culture has some version of it, you know, it's, it's really, a, it's the sex metaphor, right? It, it, that's what it always is. You're exchange fluids i mean obviously it's a, it's a sex metaphor but there's also the there's tragedy to vampires which i've always liked uh you know so you can play them as sort of more tragic or more monstrous or there's so many sort of versions of a vampire um and obviously you know chronophage uh, is not a standard vampire but um you know he has to feed he has to and and we really play up the sort of intimacy aspect of that right like that you know the the, the big metaphor in that story is just like how time is sort of so much part of who you who you share who you 
uh, choose to be physically intimate with becomes a very much a shared time uh, mm-hmm. situation. So that's a big part of our story as well. Yeah, yeah, no. And so you mentioned their vault announced um, West of Sundown, which you're going to be, I think, co-writing with Aaron Campbell. Um, yep. And so what can you tell us about what's coming? So it's vampire are, are included. Um, what's the hook for, for West of Sundown, which sounds like a pretty you know exciting series launch? Yeah, it's I'm very proud of it. Uh, the, the basic concept is that uh, it's it's post Civil War, um, sometime in the 1870s, and uh, we are introduced to a vampire named Constance who lives in New York City, and uh, and basically the the monsters as they used to be able to live in this sort of pre Civil War era, they could get away, they could hide, but with the rise in technology and sort of America becoming more and more connected, uh, you know, in the cities, it's getting harder for vampires to live. All monsters really. And so uh, she's pursued by a bunch of uh, vampire hunters and, and, uh, and has no choice but to go west, basically, because it's still, you know, the only wild, uncivilized part of America yet. And yeah. so also a big part of this for her is that we really play into that, um, that part of like Dracula, where her soil is a big part of what keeps her her strength. She has to carry it around. And so she has to go back to the place where she was birthed, uh, essentially. So for Dracula, obviously, that was Transylvania. And for our character, it's New Mexico. So, but it allows us, I mean, I don't want to give too much away because it's a crazy book, but it basically allows us to do, it's, we're sort of setting up this universe uh, uh, set around the old West where a certain kind of, um, of European monster runs headlong into a certain kind of American mythology. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the sort of headier version of that. So you can have, yeah. So it'll be, it's, it's cool. We use a lot of uh, different uh, characters from, from our European uh, literary history, and then a lot of myths from from the Southwest. Nice, nice. Okay, yeah. I mean, it seems like in Dark Red too. Like you're doing, you know, it's it's a vampire book, right? And these both are, but it's also very much exploring like changing American cultures and American mythology, and that that's definitely the piece with Dark Red that has really hooked me because it's really looking at the changing American landscape, you know, up to and through present day, right? And sort of reflecting on and and like you, this I think really stands out in the one shot you just did where roads lead, where it's kind of this world war, you know, from the world wars through the progression of now and kind of like, what were we fighting for, for an America then? What was that idea versus kind of where, where we are now? And it, it, there's a nice um, through line, I think that, that is allowed there in these vampire stories where it's, yes, there's the violence. Yes. There's the, you know, the cool art, right. From these, these different partners you're working with. Um, but there's more to it than, than I think some readers who aren't familiar with the material would, would expect, right. From the classic vampire story. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I mean, I like to use them as a metaphor, obviously. So, you know, in, in Dark Red, the, the metaphor of, of Chip being sort of from a certain generation, he's, you know, someone who grew up uh, when America was right. I mean, like, it was correct. Like, you fought Nazis, and that was the right thing to do. And then has lived through, uh, and hasn't changed in age, right? He still looks to be a, a young guy until when, you know, there, there was questions about if America was doing the right thing during the Vietnam War. And to now, where I think there's just this two different ideas of what America is, very two very distinct different ideas of what America is, and and you know our character Chip is sort of a classic conservative, but he's not a Republican where some parts of the party like are on the side of Nazis or Russia. So you know there's a there's a really different sort of approach for him. He's sort of trapped in this uh, this world, which I think is what is interesting about a vampire idea that he he's we're, we're really seeing that with that character is that you know he's He's trying to maintain his his view, his morals, even though obviously one he has to feed on people, and two the, the views of people like him are changing to something he would never do. Yeah, 
Yeah. No, it's interesting. Yeah, that conservatism as viewed through the lens of someone who was there <laughs> when America was right, right? It, it definitely changes the perspective as opposed to obviously a lot of the nastier stuff that's associated with now, um, or at least, you know, can be politically. Uh, so you're co-writing West of Sundown with Aaron Campbell. Uh, it seems like you co-write a lot. You know, I'm, I'm tracing it back now to something you said earlier, which is just you're a very social person. How much of co-writing do you think is just like your desire to be interacting with others? Um, you know, because you're, you're co-writing, you mentioned with Steve Orlando, obviously working with Sarah on Money Shot. Um, you know, you've done like Grayson with Tom King. Like it's definitely something you seem to do a lot, right? For somebody with an established reputation, I don't think that's quite as common. Um, what is it about co-writing for you that, that is such an appeal? Yeah, I mean, I, the big part of it obviously is uh, the collaborative, the social aspect of it. It gives you excuse to talk to somebody. Um, yeah. And you'll notice a lot of those these books got rolled out around uh, pandemic time. So it gave me an excuse to talk to my friends. Um, yeah. But a big part of it, you know, I like to make sure that I'm trying. It's not just the same voice over and over, you know, and, and I felt like Money Shot needed. I knew what it wanted to be, but. I really wanted a woman's perspective on that book as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think I'm pretty good at writing funny, but I'm not as funny as Sarah. Uh, that's just a fact. Sarah's much funnier than me. So, you know, Most I, people. If I, <laughs> yeah. uh, there's there's not a lot of people as funny as Sarah Beattie. Um, so, you know, I get a new voice with it. And, uh, and a thing that happens a lot to me is I'll be working on an idea and I'll roll it by someone and be like, hey, what do you think of this? And they'll they'll start having ideas, and I'll be like, I have to share this with you now, right? Like you just came up with that thing, and you made it work, and now I I really need you to be part of the story. So uh, that's how my money shot for sure. I I told Sarah about it, and she was like, Well, what about this? Like, well, now you got to fucking write it. And then uh, <laughs> that is also true of West of Sundown, which was, um, you know, idea I had, uh, but I've known Aaron Campbell for a good decade plus, and I know he knows so much about. The old west and i know he knows so much about new mexico and so i called him and told him this idea and he it just like he couldn't stop he, he kept mm -hmm. throwing me ideas like well you're hired i mean i i have to share it with you now because mm -hmm. i'm going to use that idea um and you know he he'd never done writing before i mean he's uh plotted stuff and came up with ideas but so our process is sort of like we jam and we talk about what it's going to be and then i i type the script and then I uh, give it over to him and he modifies some dialogue and thinks of stuff. And then we go back and forth a few times until it's perfect. And then uh, we send it off to Jim to get drawn. So, which is how I worked with Tom on, on Grayson. And I, I loved that process. Just, you know, sort of, uh, it's to some degree like a, you get something that you never would have done on your own. And so it feels slightly different, I guess, is kind of what I, what I like about it. Yeah, it's cool. No, I like that approach, how it gives a, a different shade and a different perspective. And it, it's been interesting, too. You know, I've seen with Money Shot how you talk about the the different processes, right? So co-writing doesn't mean the same thing based on different partners, right? Like with Sarah and Money Shot, it's, it's like it's joke writing, right? It's like, you know, it's like a lot of like oversight into just how do we punch this up? How do we make it funnier? Whereas maybe with Aaron, yeah, it's more informational. It's more history. It's more plot, right? Sorts of things like that, um, which is obviously going to give a different flavor to these types of works. So Money Shot's been one of my favorites coming from Vault for a number of years. I've had it on various CBH festival lists and that sort of thing. It's it's very funny, very sexy, very intentional, and also very satiric. Um, I think the timeliness and the relevance of the satire is is great. How, it's, tr it's tremendously sex positive as well. Like how do you ensure that that stays a part of the book and, and like what was most important to you to get across on Money Shot where it's literally you know, a porn story, right? 
Um, but there's so much more to it. Like, how did you ensure that with this work? I mean, the biggest thing that we said from the beginning was that it was going to, it's about porn. It's not porn, which I mean, and again, I, I wouldn't care if it was porn, but I know that the way people react to that word is, you know, but like to them, it's a bad thing, right? That, or people will say like, oh, you know, it was, it was kind of porn. Like, it's like the bad thing. Like, you know, that's great. But uh, <laughs> so we think there's a guy like, you know, the, it would be about this. Like, it would be about people involved with it. But the focus would never be, like, just on the sex, right? The sex is always in service to some other part of the story. You can imply a lot of stuff and we can show, like, clips of it. And it, if the sex is funny or if it's emotional um, or if it's for, for the plot, then we do it. But that's the... That's sort of way we always approached it and i you know that's why i wanted sarah to be part of it because her public persona is very sexual she makes all these dirty jokes um you know she she posts sexy photos on the internet but if you know her she she's hilariously awkward about sex like about everything about it and i just thought that was so great i wanted chris our main character to be sarah basically like she can be sort of this you know really sort of brazen, really confident, uh, really sexy person. But if you know her, she's just kind of a goofball, right? Like, um, and so, you know, being able to combine that. And I also always wanted to make sure that I didn't just include things that I thought were sexy, right? Like, uh, I want things that Sarah and Rebecca thought were sexy and, and then Caroline as well, just to help keep this book, you know, fresh. And, you know, it, it just can't be like every issue is another hot tub scene because that's what i like <laughs> right so right like, right i felt like that you know and, and now i was right I, I, that you know that they would bring things that were like sarah really liked the character doug and i thought you know doug was meant to be like the idiot and she thought yeah. on something in him that i didn't necessarily i, I mean i may have got through eventually but she saw it right away uh and so you know that kind of stuff just helps keep us honest uh which is i think the biggest most important stuff of things now is people only really respond to things that are true you know and i don't mean true like factually but true like they feel honest like they're coming from a real place not a fabricated place yeah yeah no that makes sense yeah doug's a great example because it is like you read that first volume or, or maybe even just that first issue and it's like okay this is the this is the punchline guy right this big big dumb goofball um but then now 15 issues in it's like no this character is like a real a real heart to them they still make the same sorts of dumb jokes but as someone who's come along that journey it's like well we kind of know where they're coming from now a little bit more and a little bit better um and it definitely shapes again narrative beyond just like okay what sexy situations are they getting themselves into with uh with aliens this time what what's been the most surprising thing you've heard from a reader about money shot oh man i mean a lot of them the, 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 the <laughs> one that always shocks people like and you'll see these on amazon it's just it's like all these reviews people are like oh i thought this would be hardcore i thought it would be Really oh. or like they're disappointed yeah, yeah. it's not as dirty as they thought it was gonna be yeah yeah it's like <laughs> you can read anything i've said about it i said it's about porn and it's not porn and i can't believe like what did I, I just you know and also i guess to some degree like what would be the point right like i mean you could just really if that's what you needed just brother there's a bunch of pornhub videos that are free and you can just <laughs> you can find it out. yeah so i'm very i'm always confused about that and I, you know, and I try not to be frustrated because I, I know not everybody reads everything, but it's like that's that is what we said from the beginning that we were that was what we were going to do. And I guess the 
we never get in trouble for that book. And I mean, knock on fucking wood because we knock here. But mm-hmm. uh, we, I've never had people pissed off about it. I've never had people. I feel like you know, in a time that people, everybody's telling you how fraught everything is and about being offensive and, and getting canceled and all these sort of things. It's like, oh yeah, no, just do it respectfully. Just do it honestly, and I think people will get it. And I, I feel like this book is a great example of that like we, you know, we provide a lot of perspectives, and so. If there's something that might have come across incorrectly, I know Sarah or Caroline or, uh, or Rebecca will catch it. And, you know, that really, I think, if there's an argument for sort of having more viewpoints on your creative work, uh, that's it right there. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not gay. So when we do stories like that, I want to make sure I check with people. Hey, does this feel right? Does this, is this sexy? Right. So. I want to do those stories, but I want to do it with, you know, a proper perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, Money Shot is is great about that, honestly. I think that, and I, I do think you're right that, you know, just those, you, we see this argument, I think, a lot now that, yes, varying perspectives provide different, you know, POVs and attentions on when that script comes in on, okay, how do we actually make this authentic for different groups? And yeah, I mean, definitely one thing I've loved about Money Shot is it is incredibly transparent and open about you know there's no one right way to this there's no judgment value placed you know it's sort of um you know i don't want to say anything goes but it's like yeah it's it's pretty open-ended like like you know do do what works that's actually interesting one of the things that surprised me about the reactions to the book too was sometimes people would be like i think you should have spent a bunch of time at some point of of like you know a character who the first time they're sleeping with someone of the same sex or something and that they should be more surprised by it. And I, my reaction to that was, well, my theory here is that in the future, this just won't be a big deal. Like, I, I just, I don't think any of our characters are are straight or, or they're, none of them are 100% anything, right? And I, I feel like maybe in the future, more and more people will, rea- will realize that about themselves. I mean, you know, that seems to be the path we're going on anyway. So I didn't want to spend a bunch of time with it because I felt like, well, that's a story you've seen. Um, and all the people I know who work in adult industries are, they are very flexible as far as what they think is sexy. Right. So, uh, you know, and that's why they work in that field. So I, yeah, that's the thing I just felt like we don't have to have a whole thing. You know, there's like a brief moment where one of the characters that's uh, Doug and uh, I'm going to uh, Omar, you know, where he says, I don't want to sleep with him. And she's like, what are you, are you homophobic? He's like, no, I hate him. And that, <laughs> I, I thought that's all we yeah. ever have to say about it ever again. Right. Like, like that's it. They don't, you know, and, and you know, Chris and uh, Bree, their relationship is, you know, it's it's not about the sex. They they have an emotional connection. That's part of the problem. That's what comes with sex. So yeah, that was kind of how I was approaching it. Yeah, it's the interpersonal stuff that gets in the way. Um, how many books full of porn star names do you have? Do you just have like pages and pages? <laughs> <laughs> we did. We came through quite a few of them. The, yeah. the the hard part about this was this. We they had to be science. Uh, oriented so like mm. you know, so that's why um they're they're except for well super massive black hole but i thought scientists would probably pick names that because all the scientists i know all the people working in science really really look up to previous scientists uh you know so that's why um i'm trying to think of their names off the top of my head but they're all sort of inspired by real scientists that's how you kind of get there you know except for super massive black hole which doug is, is, he says right away that's going to be my Name. It's, it's appropriate, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it works. When you've got it, don't uh, don't don't mess with perfection. Um, great, great. How how much at all has uh, has money shot changed? So you have an, an artist change from Rebecca Isaacs to um, Caroline Lay uh, over the third volume here. Uh, how much has your approach changed at all with the with the shift in artist? Oh, I, I didn't at first. I kind of wrote the way I would, um, but it's bit, Caroline and Rebecca are very different, uh, and Rebecca is like really. Um, I really, I, I guess, I didn't see at the time how much of her work is really sort of subtle. Like she's all in the face. It's she's very Kevin Maguire. It's all expressions and stuff. And Caroline's work is much more uh, like outwardly expressive. Like the characters, they they react and stuff very much with their whole bodies. And so, you know, now I sort of know with Rebecca, I was starting to orient it more towards the subtlety, and, and with Caroline, I think I I oriented more towards the big. It's almost like because I think Caroline comes from manga. Right, mm-hmm. and my stuff is very. It's always the acting is very big and broad, you know. Um, so now I kind of know to orient her her towards that, you know. So and yeah, it's it's interesting. I think Caroline comes from web comics, you know. Rebecca's like me; she comes from traditional, you know, print comics. So yeah, one of the things I worked with Caroline was like, oh hey, you know, this has to make a page as a unit. Okay, now we have to we know we have to work on that because she's used to you know basically like a Sunday script, except she's used to a scrolling web webtoon. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was interesting. And, you know, she's much younger than uh, me or Rebecca. And uh, so that was kind of an interesting thing, too. Like, some of the references are, are not things that she understood. Um, but she knew stuff that I didn't. So, you know, it's again, it's always, it's a collaboration. It's a collaborative medium. So, uh, so much of the stuff that you come up with is because of your creative part. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So we're 15 issues in. I think I've seen that uh, a 16th is planned. How how long do you see Money Shot going? How, how long do you think this series will run? I mean, as long as people read it, I, you know, the, it's a weird book because uh, it seems to mostly, it's like a lot of my stuff. It sort of eventually becomes a book that people buy and trade. And uh, yeah. Paxlab became that, Revival became that. And I, I see that with Money Shot as well. Like as much as I try to make these like things that, you know, sell, hundred thousand copies monthly they always are well they do okay monthly but they do really well in trade like that's just my lot in life i guess i'm more of a that's my audience um so i wanted to do the way we kind of figured this out was with vault you know and because of my schedule i can do like one series at a time so let's do money shot and then i really want to do west of sundown so we're putting that in between and then we'll come Mm -hmm. back to money shot um and that, that just gives me like a chance to think about stories and um you know, come back with new energy and feel uh, excited again, you know, so, and they're, they're really nicely different genres. So that, that <laughs> I'm not cannibalizing myself because very few plots that I come up with money shot would work in West of Sundown and vice versa. So, <laughs> okay. Sure. Sure. No, it makes sense. So, so I really love revival, which you've mentioned a few times, the book that got me into your work. Um, That's a 47 issue run. So is the, like, like, do you want to, do you like runs that go that long or is it purely just like attention sales based for you? Like, Hey, money shot goes for 50 issues. Amazing. Or like, is there like an actual, I don't know. Like, is there a part of you that like, cause that's like five years of your life, right? Where you're, you're in that thing. Flash. Right. And it, yeah. I mean, there's a yeah. hundred. I would prefer to do, I, I always remember I had this conversation with Robert Kirkman once where uh, he was talking about like, you know, invincible and walking. He's like, I don't even under, I don't even get comfortable until issue 16 or something like that. Mm. That is amazing. And he's, he's able to sort of keep those books going that. And then I think he's really happy to do invincible when he's doing like issue 87 or something. And I I really wish I could do that. The market is not really geared towards that. 
like I said, think to switch to trades at some point. And yeah, I wish I could just do one. I wish I could just do one monthly book that I wrote through. That's what I wish I could do. Uh, just one, and I just do it for the rest of my career. I wish. I wish I was doing Savage Dragon. I, I think that would be or a book like Savage Dragon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where I, I, mean. I do it every month, and I write it, I draw it, and I do everything. Uh, I've never been given that opportunity. I, I just the market doesn't seem to work that way. Maybe it's changing towards something like that. Uh, you know, but like those big long manga runs, like I wish that's how we did things. We just don't mm, in this country. Right. So yeah, if if I could just do Money Shot or West of Sundown or Hackslash Revival, that's what I would do. Revival was contained, like it it had a beginning, middle, and an end, and we knew it from the beginning. So you know that one couldn't go on forever. I feel like it had to be. The story was about the sisters, and and once we get through that, then I think then it's just a scenario, right? Like there are a lot of interesting characters there, but I think they were all to support the main story. So yeah, revival is contained. Hackslash could go on for a billion years. You know, it could go on without me. Do you miss Hackslash? It sounds like you do. Yeah, I mean, I'm working on it right now, so I don't miss it that much. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah. We're doing a story for the Image 30th anthology. Yeah, so Stefano and I are reteaming for that one. Uh, so that'll come. It's a year-long story. I think ours is the back half. But yeah, so I never miss it because it's always fucking there. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that the one? Is that the work you're proudest of? you think like is that the most you yeah I, I guess yeah i mean and and to some degree you know it's it's that beginner's luck like uh, the fact that that book still works and that people still like it um you know there's some there's something to it I, i'm not exactly sure what but um you know i guess part of it is she's really flexible and i'm finding that out because the image 30th story basically involves um a tour through the image universe through cassie so oh nice uh, Seeing how flexible she is, because I can put them, I can put he, she and Vlad in a blood strike story, and it works. Like it's not a, it, 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 yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it does work. So, yeah, I guess probably I'm the most proud of that one. Um, you know, and there's things that I made that I really like that no one cares about. So that always confuses me. Like I thought Imaginary Fiends was one of my favorite things, and I don't know why people just like, meh, whatever. It's weird how stuff just clicks like that. Like so, some stuff you might feel great about and doesn't take off. You know, uh, Sundowners was one of yours that when I was getting into writing about comics, um, I really dug that book. And I was like, oh, this is going to be big. And then like it kind of like you know, didn't didn't go too far. It's still weird. It, you know, like concept wise, like, you know, just sort of this weird take on superheroes. You know, like Jeff Lemire did Black Hammer not too long later. And it's huge. Like, what, what yeah. did we do? Why did Sundowners <laughs> It bugs me, and I love that book, and I love those characters. And that's a book I had set up to be like, this could go on forever. Like this could, yeah, not contained. It's like you know, here's all these different characters, and they can pass in and out. And uh, but yeah, uh, it is what it is. Timing, I'm sure, was part of it. It is, yeah, that timing piece of it is made because like revival comes out in a moment where, like, that's pre leftovers, right? And and then leftovers became a really big thing in terms of a a very different take, but also a somewhat similar premise in terms of like, okay, revival and um you know uh, resurrection type stuff um and and it comes out in a moment where you can tell just culturally like okay there's an appetite for that sort of story you know and i, I was impressed i wasn't there for hackslash when it was coming out originally but i went back you know somewhat recently and it's like there's a danger you know sometimes going back to a book that came out early 2000s and being like okay like culturally contextually like this might have some awkward stuff and hackslash holds up really well um it's it's definitely yeah you know just topically like it's it's pretty evergreen <laughs> not to use that word about something that you poured your heart and soul into but like yeah it clicks yeah and it, 
yeah, I mean, I it was always tongue in cheeky. So you know, yeah. even though it's blatantly, I mean, speaking of things we never really got in trouble for, like that, that book. I mean, it you know, Cassie's always fallen over and shown her underwear and stuff. But like, it's 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 cheeky about it the entire time. It knows what it is, and you know, there's something. I think you, the kind of fans who read that kind of book are also the fans that came from manga and and come from also horror films. And, and so, like, it kind of had this mix of, of different kinds of readers. And, yeah, it's it's weird that it holds up. I can still, like, print hardcover editions of it. And, and I don't know why people like it, but I'm glad, I'm very glad they do. Yeah. No, I think, it, I think it's a tone thing. Like, I definitely do think it's a... Because I, I, purely based on the covers, I was like, oh, this will be, like, a skeevy, porny thing. Um, or, or yeah. like, kind of a leering attitude. But, but it's not... Tonally, it's not leering, right? And, and there's... Yeah. A, a cheekiness to it that I, I I think that's a huge huge part of the success at least for me as a reader um, at this point in time. Um, so okay, my follow up question that was going to be what work do you wish people talk about more? So we, we have two good answers already. Yeah. <laughs> I think. Um, so I, I do want to ask you. Um, you're writing some DC stuff, uh, a handful of DC stuff. Some of it, you know, King Shark. You got Robins going on. Um, I heard you on on Word Balloon. You were talking about Robins and how you kind of had to go back and kind of get like a you know continuity history of of these characters because you're writing all the Robins. Um, and one thing I thought you said there that was really interesting is like you're writing for the universal understanding of the characters versus the current state of continuity, right? That, that sort of approach. Is that something that you try to take with, with licensed stuff, with superhero stuff um, in general, or is it more just that's a fit for this particular project? I, I try to do it with everything. Um, yeah. I mean, I, one of the things I think is so weird about superhero stuff is that um, it is so mass appeal, and yet for a big portion of the superhero comics industry, which is just a portion of comics, but for a big part of it is we make things for people, very small group of people, and, and we try to avoid the, the, the wider... It's so weird to me. Why do we do that? Why do we keep making these things that... You know, like, I teach college, and I ask my students, like, what they read, and they never read superhero comics. They, they, they don't... And they're, they love the movies. They love the characters. They're just like, oh, I don't understand where I'm supposed to pick this up. I don't... You know... And, so weird to me that that's what we do and then robin's is such an education on that because i i really went out of the way to sort of make that you know like you wouldn't want to read this like big epic crossover thing with all your favorite characters and then have like you know superman in the blue electric costume right like <laughs> right yeah even just going back i was i have a big collection of all those weird late 90s um crossover books where they would do like a prestige formats of like you know punisher versus batman and um you know, black backlash versus Spider-Man. Like, there's just a ton of them. And one of the weird things about them is that some of them are so much of the time. Like, mm. you know, like it's Ben Riley's Spider-Man. Like, and, and you're, you know, that's gone. That's age is gone. There's a version of Spider-Man that is always going to survive. And you can He's absolutely... back. He's back. Right. <laughs> All right, fair enough. That's a bad example. But the, <laughs> but the, the idea that, like, you know, there's a version of Spider-Man that will always survive, and you absolutely should change things up in their series. Like, yes, you should do Ben Riley in the series for sure. You got to got to change it up. Part of the thing about superheroes is that other people take the mantle, and the other one comes back. You got to get people excited. These things go for eighty years, of course, you know. But on the other hand, like when you're doing these these things, like, do you, isn't it just confusing for people who came here for everything to be like, you know, oh, why is Robin, you know, like, do I, why should I have Damien off? doing some kind of tournament like then i can't use them right like that doesn't make sense. It doesn't i just have to use the version that people understand and it, it's so weird to me the reaction to robbins is like all these people angry that i didn't reflect something that 
you know, that's great for right now, but it's not going to be the status quo for forever. It probably won't be the status quo for three months. You know, it's just not. And so, you know, I, I think of like Hush, which is a story that has lasted so long for Batman. You know, it's basically the distilled version of those characters, right? It's the distilled version of, you know, um, and I, it's just weird that that, that worked then. Or, or you know, uh, The Long Halloween or, or any of these stories where it's like, Everybody accepted that Tim Sale drew Batman this way, and and Jim Lee made uh, Killer Croc sort of a big crocodile instead of a guy. And it's not continuity; it's just their interpretations, and it's meant to be evergreen. And I, I I'm so, so shocked at the reaction sometimes. Like, and I guess it's just specifically a certain kind of fan, I think, because other characters don't have, people don't have that reaction. Robin's partially because people grow up with Robins, each Robin, and so each Robin is important to someone. You know, for various reasons, uh, which I, I try to reflect. It's just that I don't care, you know, what costume they're in in a different book because or if it changes, if I'm doing issue three and they get a new costume in, in between three and four, I don't care. <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> you know, I'm not doing it. It's not, it's just not part of the story. Pretend this happened sometime after that or before it or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. It is that tricky thing, right? Like there's that, that continuity detail can be part of the journey for someone with like, you know, these ongoing runs and obviously you're no stranger to this, right? You wrote Nightwing in the, in the DC rebirth era, you wrote Grayson, like, like, you know, this game, but yeah, with Robin, like that's definitely something for me. I don't, I don't have tremendous Robin fandom. I like these characters. I like some of the Batman stories they're in. I don't have like particular Robins that I tie to, but I've definitely seen in recent years, like, especially with social, like people have Robin fandom and it is intense um, for, for all variety, right? Damien's got fandom. Cassandra's got fandom, right? It's every single character. Um, and is, is that the book that like you get the most flack for? Like do, do people come at you about Robbins the most? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, I, there was a moment when that first issue came out that I was like, I, I think I'm out. I, I really, I just, it was so miserable for me. And you know, wow, wow, wow. I get to write, you know, cool DC stuff and I get paid for it. So yeah, that's fine. But yeah, I mean, it was a miserable week. Like. It was just constant. It was like this assault. Like they must have said, you know, I know people do this. They they sort of organize on a message board or on Tumblr or something. And then they like, you know, that's how they do it. And they're like going to punish you. And they like tried to change the past even. Like there's all these people who were like, oh, you shouldn't be writing this book. You're the guy that shot Dick Grayson in the head and turned him into Rick. I'm like, no, I didn't. I didn't write those books. I had nothing to do with that. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know. Well, you you launched Tom King's career, so I think we can hold you accountable. My fault that no, I don't think it's Tom didn't do that, right? It's like that was a storyline that they did, and and it's whatever. It's not personal, and and it's just so weird that and there was like this this urge to rewrite history to some degree to like justify being mean and and being Mm. so weird. And this is the second time it's happened. The last time it happened was also Dick Grayson. It was uh, uh, Grayson. Uh, when we had the whole flap it's just there's this weird thing of like dehumanization to some degree and like this uh, some like somewhat of his entitlement and some of it's just like uh clicks for clicks right like it's it's like you're you're some kind of personality in the fandom and so mm. you know you get more attention by being marjorie taylor green of this than you do by be, just putting your head down and doing policy right so like i'm familiar so with I that get it. Right. So like yes. there's that of every fandom. And so um you know, it's just it is what it is, but do you do you think some of that's a marketing thing? Because like like what you're writing, you know, Robin's like you're you're writing for Evergreen, right? Like you're writing for long term, you're writing for like you said, like this universal understanding. 
of the characters. And DC's got avenues for that type of thing, right? Like there's, you know, like Black Label, obviously. It's like no one, no one reading a Black Label book should expect that it's going to reflect what just happened in Batman number 106 or whatever, right? Um, but because Robbins is set in, I don't know, what ostensibly feels like this interconnected universe, is there like a, a gap in the way it's presented to readers, you know? I mean, and probably I think a big part of it is probably the, that they did that round robin thing, you know, the, because part of it was like when we were doing the round, round robin the concept and the pitches, um, you know, I worked with the editor, uh, Andrew Marino, on this, and, and we sort of figured out what it was going to be. And, you know, it was pitched as a general thing, and it was always going to be that because we didn't know when these books would come out when they were part of the round robin thing yeah, anyway, right? Or if they would ever come out. Because they were part of a, so I'm sure the marketing side of that is part of this. Yeah, I mean, because we weren't promising anything, but we were just telling a story and uh, with characters that we love. But yeah, it probably looked like a different thing than what it was on the inside. And you know, I also think there's a part of that which, the being part of this sort of round robin contest, it worked against us to some degree because a lot of people felt like this book stole something from them, which it didn't because, you know. But that's what it looks like. So I know presentation is such a big part of it. You know, and obviously I had nothing to do with, I'm a freelancer. I don't have anything to do with those choices. And I'm glad they made the choice of doing this contest because it got attention to, to comics. And I think it made it fun for a lot of people. But, you know, and it, again, when I was first presented with this too, we were talking like, oh, this will be on the, you know, the, the DC app. This will be on that. So like, it has to be sort of more general. This would be for people who subscribe to these things and they got this with it and they're, you know, so. Well, that's that's like what King Shark is, right? Like it's a, you know, it's it's DC Universe first, and it's like okay, like we have a movie audience here, we have a certain level of familiarity, right, with this character, um, or like Harley Quinn, you know, I think you're you're playing off the animated series a bit in terms of the presentation of that character, but right, it's it's more of a universal understanding, yeah, exactly. And so I know I did what was, you know, I did the assignment, right? Like <laughs> that's what <laughs> talked about, and that's what they wanted, mm -hmm. and that's what I did. Um, but yeah, I just didn't expect the, yeah, like. It's just so weird for me for people to be angry about it um, because I'm just doing. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's very fascinating. But I, it, you know, on the other side of it is is having things that people don't react to at all. So, you know, maybe it's better to have people angry at you. I, I don't know. I <laughs> I don't. You know, I just uh, I write scripts and I turn them in and I work with artists and you know and, and the books come out and sometimes they're what I thought they'd be and sometimes they aren't and uh, you know that's it. That's the <laughs> I'd learn hopefully, and I, I never approach this with, uh, you know, ill will in my heart. I love these characters as much as they do, and um, so you know that's all I can do. But it is interesting, for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a rough, it's a rough path. I think. I mean, and, and obviously, like there are books I don't like. There's a way to do criticism that is, you know, breaking down. Like, okay, what in this comic doesn't work for you? And then there's like a real emotional fandom going way overboard, which is like, you know, to the point of like forgetting that, like there's real people at the end of these books that, you know, nine times out of 10, like these characters and want to tell a good story. You know what I mean? Or more than nine times out of 10. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's also, and the thing I, I think a lot of people sort of have trouble with is it might just not be for you. Right. Yeah, like, sure. Like, so like if something is made in a, in a sort of fashion of, of trying to be appealing to a lot of people who may not be familiar with the characters, then that might not be your thing. And that's mm -hmm. okay. Right. Like I don't, it's a, that's a very strange thing to me too, because you know, I I certainly have been a big Spider-Man fan my whole life or Superman fan, but some things I just were like, that's not for me. That's fine, right? Like it's just not. 
I'm sure it's well done for what it is, but it's 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 not my thing, you know. So and then that's okay. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's like as a superhero fan, it's like that's that's most books, right? Like it's there's so much. Like you have to you have to process what's good and what isn't. Um. So some of the other the other DC stuff you're doing, you mentioned Superman Lobo. Um. You had a uh, you have in that you're right co-writing that with Sarah again, um, which is a fun a fun book, right? It's Lobo books, right? There's going to be more comedy elements. Um. In the first issue, you had some you got some attention. Superman literally saving lives. He runs afoul of a new group known as the Anti Savers. It's pretty clearly a mirror to like anti vaxxers right? And what's going on with COVID? Um, what kind of reception did you run into there? Like, was that a was that a big headline grabbing thing? I know I saw a pop, but just reading it, I could tell like, okay, this will get some people's attention. Yeah, it's weird. Also, we wrote that before the vaccine vaccine came out. So like, uh, oh wow, you know, so like because uh, the vaccine started showing up in uh, April, right? Um, mm. And so the reaction was around there. I think we wrote that in September, October of the year previous. Because yeah, you're it's, definitely ahead of it. Yeah, there was uh, Merca, um, you know, needed some lead time because they were long books, and uh, so uh, yeah. So it's not like I mean, I was reacting to what I thought people would do, but not to specific stuff. Um, and you know, uh, obviously I was right, but uh, so, but that one was weird because uh, the there was a major major driver of of where the attention for that one came from, which was. Uh, Pat Oswald retweeted the. He was reading it on his iPad. He screenshot it. He got four million followers. So, um, so there was a very specific reaction. And that was very much just like a Twitter thing, and that was fun. That one was fun. I, I didn't, you know, it was a huge reaction, and a lot of people were mad at me, and a lot of people thought it was hilarious. The intent. I'm trying to tell a satirical story about I what I, basically what I think would happen in these situations, and that's what I thought would happen, and I was right. So, so I think it's funny and, you know, um, but the story is really about the sort of difference between Superman Lobo that to me, you know, to some degree, like, I, I really like Lobo as a character, really fun, but he's a bad guy, right? And uh, you're not supposed to think he's the good guy. You're never supposed to think Lobo is right. He's not, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So that's what the book is about. Like, and you'll see it as we go on. I mean, in issue two, you start to see that we're making, we're very much taking a side on this because Superman says, how can you be attracted to Lobo? He's the worst. He, he like says, you know, like dark side has more morals than Lobo does. And, and <laughs> yeah. Like, no, but he's, I don't know. And, and that was a, a Sarah uh, line out of that. She actually said in real life uh, that we put in the book, <laughs> but, but the, you know, the book becomes more about that as we go along. Like the, the basic, premise here is that Lobo hates Superman because he's liked because he's good. That's why he hates him. He's always hated him. And, uh, you know, Lobo represents something Superman could never be, which is selfless. And Lobo could never be that. And he hates him. That's what it's about. <laughs> so, so obviously the anti-vax sentiment would make its way in there, right? Because that's about being selfish, right? That's what it is. That's You're not contributing. You don't want to be part of deciding not taking a hit for the team you're saying i don't want to and you know and that's a choice that's fine but you have to know what it is and so that's why it makes sense for us to make fun of it in the same you know in the same breath as we're making fun of logo yeah yeah no totally it, it definitely fits and in, in contextually fits within the story so all right so we've got we've covered a lot here um you've got a lot of work coming out we mentioned uh gwynverse coming out is there anything else that's next or that you want people to check out that is that we haven't touched on that's on the on the radar for you Man, let me check. I think that's everything that I have announced. I have a bunch of, I have a line of stuff I'm working on uh, next to my computer, but I think that's everything. Everything else is unannounced or 
a little bit down the line. Uh, I did do some drawing. I drew uh, for free comic book day. Did some Archie stuff, which was fun. Uh, It was on my bucket list. I always said I had to do an Archie thing. I've been waiting for a long time. Uh, And they finally said, here, draw this with Fred Van Lanty. So um, it's a sort of like multiversal sort of Archie thing. But it's Archie meets uh, Pure Heart, the the superhero form of himself. Uh, Mm. And so, yeah, that'll come up free comic day. And then I got a bunch of other stuff that'll get dropped here sooner or later. Cool. Very good. Anything you're reading right now that you'd recommend, comics or otherwise, or have read in the past uh, you know, handful of months? I'm I'm currently reading a book by Evan Osmo. Evan Osmo's called uh, Wildlands, uh, The Making of America Fury. It's about just sort of like the dichotomy between, you know, kind of where we are as a country. Uh, let's see, what else am I reading? Um, it sucks because I rarely read stuff anymore that's not, that's just for me. I'm always either reading yeah, yeah, something yeah. Read or I'm reading something for research <laughs> or um, let's see, what else? Um, I bought a couple of books yesterday. I picked up the new, I'm a, I'm a huge Silver Surfer guy. And if you put Ron Mars and Ron, and Ron Lim together on Silver Surfer, I'm going to buy that. So I, I picked that one up. I uh, thought that would be fun. Um, yeah, I went to a comic store yesterday and bought a bunch of stuff, but it mostly was stuff for my daughter. So um, I also picked up six, Sidekicks of Trigger Keaton. I got that one yesterday. I got to read that. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I've got a pile of stuff to to go through. Always. Yeah. Very cool. What uh, what shop do you go to in Chicago? I guess you don't you don't have to say, but if you want to. Oh, I, no, I, I um I hadn't I haven't been to a shop in a long time. Um, uh, but I did go yesterday to Challengers. They have a kids section. It's awesome. Challengers. Yeah. Yeah. I took my daughter in there. I let her run wild. One hundred thirty dollars later. Uh, <laughs> awesome they have, they have such a cool kids breakout i love that about that store like it's it's, yeah, so... it's awesome i knew she would like it. yeah it was awesome and she saw the giant ninja turtles and the batman and she, she didn't want to leave she she could have stayed there all day yeah. that's amazing so, well awesome. done, yeah yeah seriously okay very cool well tim it's been a pleasure talking to you i really appreciate you taking the time um and uh where, where should people find you on social or any of that stuff if they if they want to find your work yeah, I'm on uh, I'm on Twitter at Hackin' Tim Seeley, and I'm on um, Instagram at Tim Seeley. It's a lot of my art and stuff, and just various photos and such. I don't do Facebook or any of those other ones, so those are most mostly the two that you'll find me at. I'm also, you can check out my larger portfolio stuff at timseeleycreative.com. Cool, cool. Awesome. All right, we'll link to all the works here in the show notes. People can check them out there. Um, again, I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at comicbookherald.com, of course, and we'll be back in a couple weeks with our next interview in this creator series. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and enjoy the comics. Thank you.